0: Now, I love praying the promises of God, but before we do that, let's make sure we're praying things that God has actually promised. For example, just about every Christian has Jeremiah 29:11 somewhere in their house. But does it apply to us today? And can you really, as some say, name it and claim it? Maybe you've heard the phrase before that God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. But does that really settle it? You'll find out the answer to all those questions today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story— and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a shiny brand new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's word will make more sense to you after every episode. My name is Luke Taylor, and I'm a pastor and tech support, or I was. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor, and like a lot of youth pastors at small churches, I'd often wear many hats at the church, tech support, plumber, lawn maintenance, repairman. I was even known to change a light bulb or two. And of course, anytime the senior pastor or the secretary or the sound booth guy had a computer issue, and because all those people were at least in their 60s, I was called upon to be the church's tech support. I don't even work there anymore, and I still get calls about computer questions sometimes. And one of the issues I had to deal with this one time, it was when the pastor's computer started getting pop-ups from Slim Cleaner. This was a program that would alert you, whenever you turned your computer on, that it had problems. It had viruses and malware and bugs, and Slim Cleaner found them, and only Slim Cleaner could fix them, as long as you entered your credit card info, of course. We'll come to find out, we had never heard of Slim Cleaner, and we had no idea how it suddenly appeared on this computer, so we googled it, we found out this is one of those programs that gets into a computer because you installed something else and this was attached to it, and then it starts alerting you to all kinds of supposed viruses and bugs that only it can find and fix. However, Slim Cleaner is also the program that's introducing all these problems, and if you uninstall the Slim Cleaner, the viruses would magically disappear as well. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a a legitimate version of Slim Cleaner out there, but this particular one, it was a scam. It looked like any other virus program, but we weren't sure where it came from, and it was sure suspicious how it came along just as soon as a bunch of glitches did. Well, today we're going to talk about another scam, False Prophets. And on this episode and the next, we're going to look at what Ezekiel says about them. The false prophets of Ezekiel's day were scams, just like Slim Cleaner. However, instead of saying you had a bunch of problems that only they could fix, the false prophets that Ezekiel dealt with were fond of saying you had no problems at all, that everything was fine, that God loves you just the way you are and is just pleased with everything you're doing. Happy, feel-good messages. And if you've been journeying with us for the past several chapters in Ezekiel, you know that's far from true, at least in Israel's situation. And we will probably find a lot of parallels with some of the false teachers of today as well. So grab your Bible, turn to Ezekiel 12. We'll finish up chapter 12 today and then launch into the 13th chapter. As a reminder, last time we were discussing chapter 12, and that was about true prophets and how to respond to them. Now, this time around, Ezekiel is going to shift his attention to the false prophets and how to recognize them, and next time, what their destiny is. So we're going to start in chapter 12, and this is where Ezekiel is is wrapping up talking about the real prophecies, and this is going to be used to contrast the false prophecies. So Ezekiel 12, 21 through 23, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, What is this proverb that you have heard about the land of Israel, saying, The days grow long and every vision comes to nothing? Tell them, therefore, Thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, The days are near and the fulfillment of every vision. So the people of Ezekiel's day were starting to lose faith in God's word. They said, You know, all these prophecies that people have been giving us for decades, they're simply not coming to pass. People keep prophesying death and destruction, but we're all doing fine. And God tells Ezekiel, they won't be saying that much longer. I'm going to put an end to that. Verse 24, for there shall be no more any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. But in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, The vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. So God says that the one way you can tell a true prophecy from a false one is that the true prophecy comes true, and a false one doesn't. So the people like Ezekiel, who are taking God's warning seriously, they're about to be proven correct. And the people saying, no, no, everything's going to be fine. Well, they are going to be exposed. And that brings to mind to me the quotation from 2 Peter 3. It's where Peter is writing about our day. He says scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? Talking about the second coming of Jesus. They'll say forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter also writes, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter points out there that the people are going to doubt the second coming of Christ. They're going to say, Well, things are going on just like they always have. Why should we believe any different going forward? And Peter says, well, hey, first of all, God has judged the world before with the flood of Noah. So it's not true whenever you say that things are going on as they always have. (laughs) And and second, they've bet on the wrong horse if they think that God isn't going to judge the world again, because by the time they realize that they're wrong, the ground beneath their feet, it's going to be lava hot. But let's deal with this question that Peter raises for us. And then we're going to tie this back to Ezekiel. Jesus did say he would be back soon, but why hasn't he come back yet? Well, Peter says this in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So Jesus left this earth, and he said he would return soon, and yet it has not been soon by our understanding of the word. It's been 2,000 years. Uh, the TV show The Chosen, um, is it, I, I call it a TV show, I guess it's technically... Uh, you can watch it on your TV. It's it's found on an app. It's a free app, and you should check out the show if you haven't. Uh, it's a little slow for the first three episodes, but if you stick with it, you really start getting drawn into the story. This is it's a story about Jesus and his disciples, and unlike most of the you know the movies and and even some shows that have been made before depicting Jesus and the disciples, um, this one puts a greater focus on the disciples themselves. Jesus is oh you know he's kind of a side character in the story. Because um, it's it's mainly focused on just the interactions and the personalities of who the disciples are. And there's a lot of great conversations in the series. And a lot of them parallel the same kinds of discussions that Christians have today. So like when the Jesus in the show, he mentions he's going to rid the world of evil soon. Well, everybody wants to know what soon means. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because, you know, we all know that soon, it must mean at least 2,000 years and counting. Uh, if you're a viewer, you know that. So as Peter said there, the, the, the soon that Jesus uses, it means a little bit different thing to an eternal God than it does to you and me. And so when we're trying to talk about when Jesus is going to come back, I would not bother trying to set dates. In fact, if you reject everybody's attempts to set dates for the rapture or for the return of Christ, uh, if you just reject those um, just by default, you're going to look really, really smart because you're always going to be right. And then if you're ever wrong... Well, it's no big loss because we just go into heaven anyway. But the main thing to remember is that we need to always be ready for the return of Christ. But if someone tries to set a specific date, you can just always turn it down, okay? And you'll look really clever if you do that. There was a theory a few decades ago that Jesus was going to return in 1988. And this was the year fixed in a lot of people's minds. There was even a popular book uh, back in the 80s. It was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It was really popular back then, not so popular today, not getting a whole lot of stars on Amazon, but it was a bestseller back in the 80s. Everybody was waiting for Jesus to come back in 1988. And then, here we are. So why didn't Jesus return in 1988? Well, let's look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Jesus did not return in 1988 because there were still people out there needing to be saved, and he was giving them more time to repent. And that's the same reason he didn't come back in 1989, in 1990, in 1991, up until today. He hasn't returned because he's giving more of mankind time to repent. So I want Jesus to return as soon as possible, but with an emphasis on soon. In fact, I want to find soon. <laughs> I, I'm personally a little bit tired of dealing with bills and gas prices and fake news and inflation and the Star Wars sequels. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I would like Jesus to just go ahead and get me out of here. But also, I have to be patient because I know that Jesus is waiting for more people to get saved. And I'm thankful he was patient with me. Well, let me ask you, you know, to those of you listening out there, Who got saved after 1988? Just put the year you got saved in the comments. Okay, if you're listening on a platform that lets you do that, I would just like to know how many of you out there got saved after 1988. And I'd be willing to bet that it's most of you. I would have my hand raised. So guess what? Jesus didn't return in 1988 because he was waiting for you. He was waiting for you to be saved. So Jesus is patient. And I'm thankful for it because he was patient for me. So may I try to be patient with others. To tie this back to Ezekiel, because in regard to God's promised judgment, what we're going through right now is also what the Jews of Ezekiel's day were going through. They had been warned for years that Israel and Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And the people said, well, hey, things go on as they always have. Everything's fine. Situation normal. You mean it's not time to build more? You know, and, and, the, and the true prophets are being doubted, and the false prophets are promising that everything's going to be okay, and God is being patient right now, because people are being given an opportunity to repent. As I've said, it's never too late until it's too late. And also, like today, eventually God's patience is going to run out. Eventually it will be too late. Eventually God's judgment arrives, and if you don't get right with God now, there won't be an escape later. Ezekiel had been given this warning uh, from God back in chapter 2. Let me read verse 5 again from that chapter. God had told Ezekiel, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Now, why did God say that? Because he was warning Ezekiel that the people would often reject his message. And it doesn't matter, because what God and Ezekiel say will still come to pass. The, the New International Commentary on the Old Testament on Ezekiel, it's by Daniel Bloch, it says this, the veracity of his message did not depend on its acceptance by the audience, but only on its source, the living God. Meaning it was true because God said so. It didn't really matter what everyone else thought about it. Truth is not up to a vote. If God has spoken, that's the final word. And you can get on board with that, or you can be wrong but that's really significant to remember for this next set of verses that we're going to read in chapter 13. So let's start there at verse one. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. So in contrast to the prophecies that come true, now God directs Ezekiel to speak up against the false prophets. And notice what their distinguishing characteristic is. They prophesy from their own hearts. It's something they've made up, either intentionally or accidentally or presumptuously. They've assumed that they know God's will when they're wrong. Now listen, it's very easy to misconstrue God's will whenever God hasn't clearly spoken on something. And we need to be humble whenever it comes to matters where we aren't 100% sure that God has spoken. Um, The ESV, it rendered that that phrase as those who prophesy from their own hearts— The NIV says it this way, those who prophesy out of their own imagination. So some people can intentionally lie, they can intentionally deceive us and claim that God has told them something whenever he actually hasn't, but for any of us, we can think something up in our own imagination, and we can think that it's God, and we can simply be mistaken about that. But that doesn't get us off the hook. God actually says woe to those people. Verse 3, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. You hear there that God pronounces woe on those who claim to speak for God when they're actually just speaking for themselves. Woe is the Hebrew word hoy. I'm sure I'm not saying it right. It's H-O-Y in the the English books that I read now. H-O-Y. And we think of woe as a pretty common word that the prophets use. Ezekiel actually only uses it three times and twice is in this chapter talking about the false prophets. There's one more time in chapter 34. So two of the times Ezekiel uses this word, woe, it's against those false prophets. And he tells us three things about the false prophets in verse three. One, Ezekiel says they are foolish. It's the Hebrew word Nabal. And it's it's a word that's common in Proverbs for the fool. It, it means an arrogant fool. Someone who thinks that they know better than God. And that goes with this idea that you know they can think something up And if it sounds good to them, then they just assume that God agrees with it too. And it's foolishness. Nabal. The second thing that Ezekiel points out about these false prophets is that they follow their own spirit. And as I said, they prophesy from their own hearts. It's from their own imaginations. The idea of following their own spirit, it carries with it the idea of their own impulses. They feel something, so they slap God's name on it, and they assume that it came from God. And this is very dangerous Okay, I'm a Pentecostal pastor. And I'm all about trying to follow God's leading and God's guidance. I'm all about the Holy Spirit directing me. So this is a word of warning to Christians like me. Be careful about claiming that everything that you feel is from God. Be careful of thinking that every impulse or thought that runs through your mind is from the Lord. That's actually an arrogant way of thinking. The third thing that Ezekiel says is that these false prophets, that they haven't seen anything, they think they're hearing from God. God actually hasn't said anything to them. Prophets are often called seers in the Bible. Um, it's not frequent, but it's, it's common. Samuel was, I think he was called Samuel the seer. Uh, it, it means that they see things in the spirit. So that's why they were called seers, because they see things that not everybody sees. But these arrogant prophets, who think that their thoughts and feelings are from God, they're actually seeing nothing. And, you know, I have a whole application on this later, um, but I'll just say here, too, this, this reminds me uh, a lot of there's this one pastor I knew growing up, uh, growing up, and he just got really fired up about the elections. Um, and he was super into politics. And, you know, I am, too. So I'm not, I don't begrudge him for that. But I remember he came in. It was after this one presidential election and the side that he liked lost. And I saw him the next day and and he he announces, "Well, God's just had it with this country. God says he's finished with this country. There's no turning back." Now, this wasn't a recent election. This was like years ago. Okay? And and listen, I don't begrudge someone being upset about an election not going the way that that they wanted, okay? But this pastor, he wasn't just saying that he's had it with America. He was saying that God had given up on America. But I remember seeing him a few years later, and he was fired up about the next election. He had apparently forgotten that God was already finished with America years before. Now, and and, you know, this pastor, he's not even around me anymore. I'm sure if I tracked him down, he would still be fired up about the future elections, still saying that they need to go the way he wants or else God's going to be finished with us. And and, and what's my point about all this? This guy was not speaking for God. He was speaking out of his own heart. And then he was just slapping God's name on it. And that's very dangerous for a Christian or, or for anybody to try and do. But I think Christians, they can be particularly sloppy about that. So um, let's finish up the verses for today. Ezekiel 13, verses four through seven. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Now that verse 6 there, that is a powerful verse. Let me just read that one more time. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Now verse 7. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? So Ezekiel calls these false prophets jackals among ruins. And what does that mean? Well, that, that Jerusalem is in ruins. It's not literally in ruins, but spiritually it's in ruins. And these false prophets are scavengers who pick through the ruins and they finish off any survivors. These false prophets, who we will see in the next lesson, they're making claims that God is going to bless these people when God has no intention of doing so. These false prophets are making false promises and giving false hope. And hence, that's why they're called false prophets. And they're just finishing off whoever is left. They have not filled in the gaps in Israel's spiritual wall. Meaning they haven't used their leadership ability and their influence over people to cause them to repent. Instead, they've let the wall deteriorate. And then Ezekiel drops the metaphors and just speaks directly. Their visions are false and lies. They say declares the Lord when the Lord never declared anything. And I read verse 6 twice because it contains something that's so significant for us to remember today. They say declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Let's talk about that in our application section before we end today. If you have a question on this chapter, leave a comment or shoot us an email. Crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Next time on this podcast, we're going to go ahead and do another Ezekiel lesson because it continues along with this theme of false prophets. And as of right now, I think I'll call that lesson Two Types of False Prophets. And that lesson is going to wrap up this chapter. And that'll give me a little extra time to work on our October 31st lesson on the origin of the Pharisees. And it might be a little spooky. So I'm going to wait and release that one on Halloween. And once again, I'm in the uh, I'm in my special recording studio in a basement next to an air conditioner unit. So if you hear the 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 furnace or whatever over here running, uh, that's what it is. And I'm at a place in life that's actually pretty great because I have a lot of time where I can focus on uh, creating cross references lessons and doing Bible study. And so I'm doing what I love the most. Um, but as far as recording space, I just got to make do with what I got. So you might hear some of that machinery running in the background. And uh, I'm sorry about that, but it, it won't be forever. Today, I want to use our application time to talk about this idea that the false prophets speak for God and that they will say, declares the Lord, but then speak from their own heart or imagination. And then, as we read, they just expect God to do the thing they said. And I want to talk about this because I feel like it's a trap that's actually pretty easy for a lot of us to fall into. We can sometimes take something that we're feeling or something that maybe we're hoping and we, we somehow convince ourselves that it's actually what God wants to. And there's a popular theology or idea among some Christians that we just need to declare things to be so. And I 100% believe that our words have some power. And I 100% believe that our words can make a difference and even make things happen. But there's an extreme form of this belief, which says that if we declare something with enough faith, that it can make God do whatever we're declaring— And this is sometimes called name it and claim it. That's probably considered a slur at this point. Like, I've never actually met a Christian who actually said that they personally believe name it and claim it. But I have met many Christians who seem to have this kind of a magical idea that you just have to say something with enough faith and then it will be so. Listen, if you've ever gotten into a desperate situation, maybe a family member is sick or your neighbor's in trouble, or or there's an emergency. Hey, I'm not dogging you today. Like, you're probably trying all kinds of things then to get God's attention. So I'm not trying to come down on you about this. I'm not calling anybody a false prophet today. If I was in your shoes, you know, I'd probably be doing the same. I'd probably be throwing anything at the wall to see what sticks. Okay? So I get that. But I'm speaking as more of a general lifestyle. Someone who just day-to-day tries to declare things and make it happen. And that's more the kind of false prophecies that Ezekiel is dealing with here. Listen, we cannot control God with our words. We can't make God do things with our words. And these word of faith teachers, they don't seem to be interested in declaring everything over their lives that the Bible says. Only the good things, it seems. And what do I mean by that? Well, look, uh, let's take an example that the Bible often says, even in the New Testament, that God injects suffering into our lives. In order to refine us and test us and purify us. And God uses suffering in your life to grow your character. And that's Bible. That's 100% biblical. But I've never heard a word of faith teacher declaring that God is going to bring them into suffering. It seems that they're always declaring that God will take their suffering away. And declaring relief or healing, you know, that's one thing. At least that's kind of biblical. I don't think there's always a biblical attitude, though, behind such declarations it's, you know, it's kind of biblical, but I've heard this name it and claim it idea. I've heard it get really extreme with people declaring promotions and wealth for themselves. And, And then faith becomes this tool that's used to manipulate God. And you can't really manipulate God. So it's silly. Word of faith doesn't respect the sovereignty of God. The idea that God knows best, not us. And that we aren't supposed to tell God what to do. When Jesus prayed, Even Jesus said, not my will, but thy will. I'm not saying everyone in the Word of Faith movement is a false Christian or a false prophet. I'm not making those kind of judgments today. But I think good Christians can get caught up in emotions and then make bad or audacious statements or even arrogant ones, like the false prophets that Ezekiel taught us about. So I just want to put this out as a warning because I feel like in the American church, This is the excess that can get really easy for us to fall into. In the next lesson, whenever we finish out this chapter, I'm going to be talking about things that perhaps aren't as much of a temptation for us, Uh, like whenever you find false prophets who speak for other deities. That's not an issue you're going to have to deal with as much in America, okay, if you're an American like me. But what we do need to be wary of is going overboard on faith, trying to declare a promotion or a new car into our lives, by the power of our own faith, okay? Now, somebody in another country, they might have other temptations. (laughs) They probably won't get as hooked into the prosperity gospel, but in America, it's all over the place. So watch out for it. And I'm all for praying bold prayers, okay? Go for it. But when someone tries to get you to declare things over your life, just ask, are they encouraging me to declare the things that the Bible says I need? Or are they trying to get me to declare the things that I just want? Are they keeping my faith in the sovereignty of god or are they putting my faith in my own power to declare things key point today when we pray our confidence should not be in our faith our confidence should be in the object of our faith which is god and our relationship with god through jesus our confidence should not be in our faith it should be in god the object of our faith so i am really uncomfortable with name-it-and-claim-it theology. And I'm also sometimes a bit uncomfortable with declaring God's promises. And the reason is that sometimes the people saying this, they make a few mistakes. One, like I said above, one problem I see with declaring God's promises is whenever it's emphasized that it's our belief or our faith that activates God's promise into coming true or being fulfilled. After everything I've been saying today, just remember Ezekiel thirteen six. It's a verse that is so instructive for us On these issues of name it and claim it or declaring God's promises, let me read it one more time. They say declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Remember, guys, it's not their word. It's God's word. So we have to be careful about that. God isn't obligated to do anything for you just because you slapped his name on it. And second, you know, I said there's a couple problems that people with when it comes to this declaring God's promises thing. A second problem I see a lot is that people declare a promise that God has not actually said. They declare a promise of God that isn't actually a promise of God or perhaps it's something that pertained to Old Testament Israel but it doesn't necessarily apply to us today. So I want to talk about that before I go because I see lots of Christ- I see lots of good Christians falling into this trap. Okay, I'm not trying to be mean today. But don't hear anything that I'm saying as me Condemning anyone, okay? There's good, solid Christians who mean very well, but I I see even them making this these particular mistakes sometimes. So let me start with an extremely common one, probably the most common of all, Jeremiah 29:11. Okay, let's just make everybody mad at me today. <laughs> Jeremiah 29:11. It's one of the most popular and most common Bible verses that you see today. Just about every Christian has it hanging somewhere in their house. They they post it on Facebook. Sometimes they even declare it over their life, and they, they claim it as a promise of God over their life. And if you don't know Jeremiah twenty nine eleven already, let me just read it for you, and you're going to recognize it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, this is a beautiful verse, okay? I'm not saying if you have it hanging up in your house that you need to go take it down, okay? <laughs> I'm not against hanging up whatever Bible verse you want. It's a great promise from God. The only problem is, it's not a promise that has anything to do with you or me. This was a promise to a select group of Jews in ancient Israel who were going to survive the Babylonian captivity. Jews like Ezekiel, okay? By the way, this verse would have applied to Ezekiel. Jeremiah was telling the Jews of Ezekiel's time that whenever you go to Babylon, don't resist. Okay, build houses in Babylon. Be an asset to their community. Get married. Have kids. And someday... I'll bring you back to Jerusalem. Now, like Ezekiel, Jeremiah was also dealing with false prophets. And the false prophets said things like, we're going to be in Babylon for a year, two years tops. God is going to protect us. And Jeremiah, was like, he, Jeremiah said, no, it's going to be more like 70 years. So Jeremiah's message, it was not as feel good as the other guys. But I will say, Jeremiah had the advantage of being right. And in the middle of Jeremiah's book, you know, he has a few more positive things to say, but they pertained to ancient Israel and the situation that they were in. In Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, it's right in the middle of that. So let me read that verse in context. I want to read Jeremiah twenty nine eleven in the context of the verses right around it. It reads, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So if you read Jeremiah 29 11 as part of the paragraph of scripture that it's found in, you'll see that it's talking about things that have nothing to do with us. We aren't in a Babylonian captivity for 70 years this verse was a prophecy given to a nation about the particular situation that they were in not to individuals who live at any time so jeremiah 29 11 it's a nice verse but it wasn't spoken to us now you might say but okay but wait a minute weren't all bible verses said to particular people weren't all of them said to someone besides us that is true but we just have to ask ourselves some questions before we, you know, go and apply any verse we want to to ourselves as if every single verse in the Bible is just a blanket statement that applies to all people at all times because the Bible does not work that way. For example, there's a lot of things that were said in the Old Testament that don't directly apply anymore and we are New Testament believers. So we follow God through a Christian post-cross lens. So when you take a statement from the Old Testament you have to ask yourself, does this statement or verse from the Old Testament, does it correlate to any of the statements made in the New Testament? Because if so, then you can probably count on it. And do we have a New Testament promise for all believers that God is going to prosper us? Well, try telling that to the Christians who were fed to lions in the Roman Colosseums. Try telling them that they just needed to declare Jeremiah 29, 11 over their lives, and then they would have been fine. Okay. Lots of people have hard lives, Christians included. The New Testament tells us to prepare for suffering. It doesn't promise that life will always be sunshine and rainbows. And I don't want to sound too mean, okay? I'm not trying to be all negative here. But what I mean is the Bible doesn't claim in the New Testament that we're just always going to live happily ever after. Some Christians get a disease and they suffer with it for five years and then they die, okay? Do we just go tell them they need to declare Jeremiah twenty nine eleven over their life as if it just applies to everyone? No, you can't do that. Now, on the other hand, I really like Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. That last verse we read, it said, "You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart." I love that verse. You know, I like that even more than Jeremiah twenty nine eleven because we can actually find New Testament verses that correlate to that. James four eight: Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Okay, well, there's a verse that can apply to anybody, anytime. And I'd say that about Jeremiah 29:13. 13. Whenever we seek God, we will find him. It's a beautiful verse. So that's a good thing to check before you just go and try to declare God's promises or just, you know, pull any verse that sounds nice and say, oh, this is for me. Well, make sure that it's actually something that God is promising for us today. And make sure that you're putting your faith in God and not putting your faith in your own faith. That, in other words, not just saying it's going to be so because I declared it to be so. Uh, There's an old phrase that's been used for years. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And if we're talking about something in which God has made a clear statement, there's nothing really wrong with saying that, that God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. But I would just want to point something out. The middle part doesn't matter all that much. You could take it out and just say, God said it, and that settles it. Because when God says something, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's going to happen, and that's just the way things are. That's the way it'll be. God said it, the end. Remember the quote that we gave earlier about Ezekiel? The veracity of his message did not depend on its acceptance by the audience, but only on its source, the living God. Now that said, it's still important what you believe. So you can leave the middle part in if you want to. Okay, God said it. That settles it. But I do hope you believe it, because it's important to agree with God. Okay, for you, for your personal life, I hope that when God said it, you believe it. Just make sure you understand that it's not your believing it that settles it, because our faith does not control God. Okay, on Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, that verse that we went through earlier, uh, there's an author, Eric Bargerhoff, he says, We have no right to hold God hostage to a promise that we have misunderstood. So Jeremiah 29:11 is indeed a promise, but it wasn't a promise to us. It was a particular statement about the future of a particular people, and it came true, and now it's history. And we can look at it, and we can rejoice that God did what he said, but we can't reapply it to ourselves. You know, as beautiful and heartwarming as the words are. Now, listen, if you have the poster up in your house somewhere with it, you don't have to rip that down. You can keep it hanging. It's a memorial to God's goodness. He did bring Israel back. He preserved the nation. He sent Jesus here to earth through it. And then we got saved. Amen. Okay, still a great verse. But just be careful at how we think about it and not, try, not trying to steal it and say we, it's something we can just make a declaration of and apply it to ourselves. Another so-called promise of God is this claim that God won't give us more than we can handle. We'll claim it all you want, but the Bible doesn't actually say that. It does say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God won't let us be tempted beyond what we can handle. Now, that's true. God is going to help us to resist any temptation. We just did a whole episode about that recently. I think it was episode 40. But it doesn't say that God won't give us more than we can handle. Um, I don't know about you, but God regularly gives me more than I can handle. (laughs) These gas prices are more than I can handle. When my father-in-law makes a move in words with friends, it's usually more than I can handle. I'm in over my head about four or five days a week. Okay, so I regularly get more than I can handle. But I say this, God helps me to get through it. And what about this verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was Philippians 4.13. Okay, let me make you all mad again. That verse is often wrongly declared over things as a promise from God. Now, if you're, you're probably getting mad at me for saying that. You're saying, well, you mean I can't do all things with Christ? Well, I'd say this. Jesus Christ is the all-powerful creator of the universe, so he can certainly help you to do anything that he wants you to do. But I'm not so sure that that verse means that you can do anything that you want to do. If you read Philippians 4.13 in context, Paul is talking about getting through any persecution that he faced. Now, I'm not going to just go read the whole slew of verses right before. I'm going to wrap up soon. But you can look it up if you want to. People try to apply this to whatever they want to do when it's not really about doing what you want. It's talking about getting through any trial that comes your way. When Paul is writing that letter to the Philippian church, he's not making six figures a year and dunking on Michael Jordan and winning the first match of Fortnite that he dropped into or working up the courage to walk into a job interview. It's not some blanket statement that you can just drop on whatever struggle or achievement that you want. Okay? I can't declare it whenever I'm playing against my father-in-law in in words with friends that I'm finally going to win a match over him. Okay? It's not going to work. Because nothing's going to work. I will never beat him. But Paul wrote those words as he was in prison, and he was chained to a desk, and he was saying that he could be content in any situation in life because he knew that God had his back. He was saying he can withstand any difficulty in life because God is going to help him to get through it. It's about suffering. So in that sense, I guess it does apply to playing words with friends with my father-in-law, maybe a little more than I thought, because that includes a lot of suffering too. But in all seriousness, you know, people take Philippians 4.13, they get it tattooed on themselves, and frankly, I'm not sure they understand what it means all the time, okay? Nothing wrong with quoting that verse, even declaring it, if you want to call it that, but we have to understand it in its original context and translate that to what we're facing today. And, And, you know, it's saying I'm going to overcome any suffering because Jesus was right there by Paul, and that same Jesus is right here with me. And I do believe it. But more importantly, God said it, and that settles it. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be soon.